And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where usually we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. But for the past two years, once a month, we have watched a horror adjacent movie as a bonus episode chosen by our patrons over on Patreon. This is the 24th and final such episode. Uh, final is not the right word, I think. My name's Ben. My name's Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. Because we'll be doing them in the future, just in a different way. Yes. Uh, Horror-adjacent movie coverage will continue, but sort of as the timeline of the regular show unfolds when deemed appropriate uh, by us. So, you know, watching Little Shop of Horrors when it comes out in 1960 or watching the Rocky Horror Picture Show when it comes out in 1975 uh, instead of like committing to like one of these episodes every month. Because they tend to be a lot as seen by your eight pages of notes. (laughs) Right. What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching Clue from 1985. Uh, A film that's been a popular suggestion many times, has even been a long-running example Mm -hmm. of a horror-adjacent film uh, for a long time on the show. And so it was chosen in the poll for this last monthly bonus episode. I just wanted to, like, up at the top, kind of talk to the way this movie is horror-adjacent. Because, like, on paper, it's... A mystery comedy. Yeah. Right? It doesn't have horror elements. But if you go back to the pre-Dracula era of American horror movies, um, and, you know, it kind of continued post as well, but the 1920s were really like the high point for this kind of movie. There used to be this genre of old dark house murder mystery in a mansion movie, uh, like... Ken the Canary. The Bat. The Old Dark House. Right. Uh, And these movies were fairly popular. They followed a pretty standard formula of just like too many characters to follow, being in a creepy old house with murders being committed and sometimes like a monster or a serial killer or something on the loose who usually gets like unmasked as being one of the many, many characters in the movie. So we've been seeing these kinds of movies for a long time, and at the height of their popularity, they really were this like genre blend of mystery, comedy, and horror, with eventually kind of those aspects like sort of splitting up Mm -hmm. with, you know, things developing into, like the mystery part of it developing into like, the country manor murder mystery sort of popularized by Agatha Christie uh, style stories. There's a chicken and the egg thing there. Sure, sure. So I, I wouldn't say like, oh, the films led to like yeah. the stories like Agatha Christie. It's they're all happening in the same zeitgeist. Yeah. I'm sort of trying to dis, uh, trace just like the way that that gestalt entity broke up. Like we don't sure. have 
the horror comedy mystery version of this anymore. We kind of have separated them into three distinct things. Yes, with an asterisk that apparently there's a Haunted Mansion movie coming out in July from Disney. Right. Which, like, I only know about because Ghost Files from the Ghoul Boys uh, did a promo for it. Interesting. They did a Haunted Mansion movie already. Yeah, so I didn't even know that this one was going on. Um, But it looks like it's a similar, we're all in a mansion, we're stuck, but it does seem to be more of a supernatural thing rather than a murder. Yeah, because the... The mystery aspect of these stories, like I said, kind of survives in mansion, murder mystery, kind of stories like Knives Out. Yeah. Um, The horror aspect of these stories, like, evolved more into slasher movies. Yeah. If you really think about it. I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, like, a great example. Mm -hmm. And the comedy aspect of these movies turned into Scooby-Doo. Yes. Like the Scooby-Doo formula of we pull the mask off the ghost and it was old man McGucket or whatever. So this is horror adjacent, like Clue is horror adjacent, not to the horror movies of the 80s it was contemporary with, but horror adjacent to the sort of prototype fetal version of horror movies that existed in the 1920s. Yes. In fact, that is tied very closely to its origins as a board game. Right. Before we start talking about the board game and its long and proud history, (laughs) um, you're a big fan of this movie. You really like Clue. My relationship to this movie is I wanted to watch it for a long time, and my parents had, like, burned it onto a VHS disc or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, recorded it onto a VHS tape. But first was Fright Night and then was Clue. Yeah. And I always wanted to watch Clue. And my sister, who would often be babysitting me, would be like, well, we can't watch Clue unless we watch Fright Night because it comes first in the VHS tape. And Fright Night... And for some reason, just the idea of fast forwarding through fight night was not an option um because she didn't want to watch clue yes and she knew i was terrified of vampires and could not get through fright night yeah so all of this is to say she was like 13 i would have been like six or seven yeah that's the dynamic there so i always wanted to watch clue i never got to watch clue instead i have nightmares about fright night um, which some would even say is like far too campy to be considered real horror, but that's, you know, for a six or seven year old, mm-hmm. it's real horror. Finally, finally, finally got to watch Clue and it was very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not like a diehard Clue fan because my experience, I, I didn't get to watch it until later in life. So I saw Clue on VHS as a kid, like we rented it from the video store. Uh, which is how a lot of people saw Clue. Um, And then I didn't see it again really until I was an adult and we got the DVD, which I think we picked up like used. Uh, Yeah, we probably got it from one of those used DVD places we go to. Yeah. And then, you know, we've had it in the collection ever since. We've watched it a couple times since. I 
don't have the affection for Clue that a lot of people do. One of our friends, Christina, is also a very big Clue fan, right? Yes. Um, though for her, I believe it would likely be tied to her fandom around Tim Curry. That makes sense. So, yeah, I, I find Clue to be okay, like just okay. It's a fun time. Uh, but I often find it to be an exhausting like a bit of an exhausting experience. Uh, why is that? Well, I feel like maybe I can talk about that after we watch the movie and we're reviewing it, right? It's probably because there's a lot going on and a lot of characters, which is just like characteristic of this type of movie. There's a lot of running around, shouting, and repeated jokes. But Repeated jokes? I don't know the meaning of the word. <laughs> Let's start with the board game okay because clue is the first movie ever based on a board game i didn't know that Mm -hmm. uh well to talk about clue or rather cluedo as was its uh i'll say original in scare quotes um because it actually had a name before that i have to talk about a guy named anthony e pratt he was born in the uk in 1903 And in his 20s, he was a pianist who would perform in country hotels and cruise ships, you know, just like a musician. And often the entertainment for the evening would be murder mysteries with a couple actors and then the hotel guests. Mm. So this is through the 20s and 30s. And that's also the heyday for what is called the golden age of detective fiction uh, and what is often described as cozy detective fiction Mm. where it has this closed circle of suspects often at a country house manor examples that we've already kind of cited include um cat and the canary the various the bats long-time listeners of the show will be very familiar with that kind of setup now you might be like cozy what do you mean by that it kind of is used to describe it in relation to the hard-boiled detective fiction Mm -hmm which increased in popularity in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, honestly, I feel like modern Tumblr users would understand the use of cozy in this context. Well, you can kind of understand even just on a vibe level, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you look at something like Murder, She Wrote, that could be a cozy kind of detective fiction, right? They're not upsetting, for one thing. Yeah, a lot of Agatha Christie falls into there. Um, As far as the closed circle of suspects, you know, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express is a really classic example where circumstances are such that there's a murder and there's like five to ten people who could be the suspects. There's no chance that it's anyone outside this circle. Yeah, and it's more about like kind of the intellectual puzzle of it than like the gruesome difficult details of like murder in the real world. Yeah, which I feel like you get with the more hard-boiled. So during the Blitz in World War II, Pratt and his wife were holed up and he started thinking about a game that called back to that cozy detective fiction and murder mystery entertainment game in his 20s. With his wife, they designed a board, different players, and the general outline for a game that they would call Murder at Tudor Close. Hmm. Uh, And in 1944, they applied for a patent. That has like a title that... I could absolutely see why that title didn't work as a board game title in the 1940s, but like absolutely is in line with like 
the modern Euro game titles of today. Yeah. They presented the game to John Waddington of the board game publisher Waddington's. <laughs> and what was that look? That was me going like, I've never heard of Waddington's, but... You could think of them as like the Parker Brothers. Yeah, well, because... Okay. And the game sold. Uh, he was like, Murder at Two to Close is a bit too clunky of a name. So what if we called it Cluedo? Ben, do you know why Cluedo? Because uh, there was a pre-existing like party game called Ludo. Yes, it's Clue and Ludo. Ludo is I play in Latin, but it's also a common name for a game that's based off of Pachisi that was played in the UK. And there were many different like types of versions that all kind of called back to Ludo. And Ludo was pretty popular in the UK, which is why they thought, oh, if we call it Cluedo, it kind of like... It's a clever pun. Yeah. Because of post-war shortages, its first edition didn't come out until 1949, but it was Cluedo. It was simultaneously licensed to the Parker Brothers in the US, but versions of Ludo over there were called different things, like aggravation, trouble, whatever. So they just called it Clue. Right, because the pun doesn't make any sense if you grew up in North America. Exactly. Now, I won't describe the full game or gameplay or whatever, but I will say that it has different characters based on colors. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the original version just had these colored little plastic tokens, but they each had kind of a name. So we had red, which was Miss Scarlet, green, which was... Reverend Green in the UK or Mr. Green in the US. I forgot that he's Reverend Green in the UK, which is a very like UK murder mystery thing. Um, Yellow uh, is Colonel Mustard. Originally it was just going to be Colonel Yellow. And then someone was like, let's make it mustard. <laughs> and so. That, sure. Yeah. Uh, purple is Professor Plum. Blue is Mrs. Peacock. White is Mrs. White. And then the murder victim is um, Dr. Black in the UK and Mr. Body in the US. Okay. I, I mean, I always understood the like joke around the name Mr. Body because he's the, the dead body. But yeah, having the, the dead guy be black in the, in, in the UK, like that, that fits and makes sense also in a very satisfying way. Absolutely. And so your goal is to identify who the murderer is, which weapon and which room? Um, at the start of the game, you take three cards from each of those decks, and then you have to use deduction to kind of figure out who did what. It could even be you who is the murderer, but you know, at the end of the day, you have to figure it out. Did you play Clue as a kid? I have never played Clue. Oh, really? So I was like reading the rules to see if it was relevant, and I was like, I don't understand how any of this works because I don't know how to read rules. I need them told to me and taught to me. So I was like, I'm just going to say none of this is relevant. <laughs> I fucking loved Clue as a kid. Absolutely um, you would. We had... You love deduction and you love logic games. Yeah, this makes total sense. We had the game uh, as a kid. Um, my parents didn't play it with me often, so I played it with my grandfather Aww. a lot. And yeah, loved the game. Um, for some weird reason, my favorite character was Mr. Green. The other thing was I grew up on um, in like my elementary school classroom we had these clue 
books that were were sort of like choose your own adventure books mm. but they they weren't you, each book would have two stories it would all be the characters from clue something would happen mr body would die and you'd have to figure out who the murderer was and you'd read both stories which wouldn't have an ending to tell you who the murderer was and you'd read them both through and then at the end of the book there would be the endings for both stories and the thing was you were kind of supposed to be challenged to like try and figure it out on your own before you flipped to the back those books the thing about clue is like every i don't know 10 years maybe or so they update all the art on like the cover of the box and on the tokens and everything to like keep the game looking fresh and modern and so because of that the version of clue that was like the covers of those books and the like box of the game I grew up with, like I guess the nineties version of clue to me that those characters look right. And all the other character versions of the game throughout the decades look wrong and weird. Well, keep that feeling in your heart for now. Cause I will bring that up again okay. in a minute. Um, so 1949 clue and Cluedo get launched into the universe and a few years later, it's it's not selling as well as they had anticipated. So Waddington goes to Pratt and he's like, hey, you want to just sell the rights? It's not selling very well. You'll make more money this way. Mm. So Pratt sold the rights to Waddington for 5,000 pounds. That's a good chunk of change in the early 50s. Right? It's nearly 180,000 pounds today. Which is like a lot of Canadian dollars. Yeah, well, they're in the UK, so I just looked at... Yeah, 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 no, 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 totally, totally. And the lower sales initiated a new marketing campaign using Sherlock Holmes adjacent and Sam Spade adjacent characters to help Mm. boost sales. Hmm. So the cover of the box would show um, Sherlock Holmes adjacent character being like, oh, I'm solving this mystery. Got it. Sales continued. Uh, and was it like Sherlock Holmes in the UK and then the Sam Spade guy in the US? Basically, yeah. Amazing. Uh, which is weird because I'm like, Sam Spade, like he has one movie. <laughs> he has a lot of books, though. Sure. So between 1949 and when this movie comes out, 1985, there have been around four editions with minor changes to the weapons, the mansion design. The gameplay is largely the same. The main difference is just that um, Miss Scarlet traditionally would go first Hmm. so there'd be like an advantage to picking her um but then that rule kind of went out and just went with like whoever rolled the highest on the dice these updates it gets confusing because uk and the us updated differently sure that makes sense um so first edition 1949 second edition in the uk is 56 and in the us is 1960 Third edition in the UK is 1960, and in the US is 1963. Fourth edition for both countries is 1972, and then fifth edition is 1986, the year after this movie, which makes sense because they probably update the characters to look like the actors. Mm. There have been a few other updates through the years, but the biggest changes is in 2016, Mrs. White was changed to Dr. Orchid and was a pink color rather than white and then in 2023 uh, a few more updates dr orchid was replaced with chef white mrs peacock was changed to solicitor peacock and reverend green mr green was changed to mayor green 
So remember that like anger yeah, you yeah, felt yeah, about yeah, like yeah. these aren't my characters. Yeah, yeah. People are like that. Yeah. Even to this day, to these people, they're like, why does he have to be a mayor? Why are these women being termed solicitor and and chef instead yeah. of by their marital status? I, like, honestly, like, and it's like just things change. Chill. <laughs> Fuck. I, I have to admit, I did have this moment of like. Is there something wrong with being married? Like, <laughs> I think it's just, um, I don't think anyone was actually particularly upset about this, but it was just looking at like, huh, all of our female characters are denoted by marital status, right. whereas all of the other characters who happen to be male are denoted by occupation. Sure. So why don't we just do that for the female characters as well? Right. But yeah, so that's the 2023 edition. Sure. Um, and that's, that's Clue slash Cluedo. Hmm. Yeah, to tie all of this back to the movie, so it's interesting how, like, this movie's coming in 1985. It's a callback to a horror-adjacent genre, which is, by this point, like, 40 or 50 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, That's pushing. It's probably more like 50 to 60 years old. And the game itself is calling back to, like, remember in my 20s when I didn't have to hide out from bombs on my city? Yeah. Like, all of it is, like, remember that cozy time of just trying to solve a murder? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird because, like, the movie isn't set in the 80s either. It's set in the 1950s, which I'll talk more about that later, but I've always felt was a really weird creative decision given that the game is from the 40s. Well, 1949. Sure, and was, like a reference to a genre most popular in the twenties and thirties, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about that later. Um, it's all an Ouroboros, Ben. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Clue is the first movie based on a board game by the 1980s. Clue was like a billion dollar game. So the idea to make a movie of it started with a producer named Deborah Hill, uh, who purchased the film rights to the game from Parker Brothers. Hill was born in Haddonfield, New Jersey in 1950 and entered the film industry in 1975 as a production assistant, working her way up and meeting director John Carpenter when she was working as a script supervisor on Assault on Precinct 13. Cool. Together, the two wrote the screenplay for Halloween, which Hill produced. Hill also would co-write and produce the films The Fog, Escape from New York, and Halloween 2. Um, and she also produced Halloween 3 and The Dead Zone before acquiring the rights to Clue. So she was basically a horror... Horror, and, genre, film yeah, kind of writer-producer. Exactly. Um, later films she produced after Clue include Adventures in Babysitting and The Fisher King. two very different movies yes and she passed away in 2005 of cancer to write and direct clue hill hired john landis landis had gotten his start as a mailboy at 20th century fox in 1969 working his way up uh to directing the horror comedy feature film schlock in 1973 which was basically like his tribute to old monster movies. He directed that at age 21. Wow. From there, he distinguished himself in the comedy genre with big hits like Animal House, The Blues Brothers, and the horror comedy An American Werewolf in London. I almost feel like that's more horror than comedy, but yes, there is comedic elements. 
1982, while working on his segment of the Twilight Zone anthology movie, uh, negligent and irresponsible leadership from Landis contributed to the death of actor Vic Morrow and two child actors from a helicopter crashing into them. Ultimately, Landis was acquitted of involuntary manslaughter, uh, but was sued and reprimanded for violation of child labor laws. Yes. The finished film was released in 1983, uh, but the comedy Trading Places, directed by Landis, which also came out that year, was a huge hit, and that sort of helped, like, rehabilitate his career and kind of, like, brush Twilight Zone under the rug, as it were. Um, he also directed the music video for Thriller that year, which was like this huge hit and a major turning point in the history of music videos. So Landis worked on the basic plot of Clue, developed the basic story of six strangers invited to a dinner party where they are being blackmailed by Mr. Body, who turns up dead. Landis also came up with the idea of the movie having four different endings, with the hope being that audiences would see the movie multiple times in order to catch the different endings. Mm -hmm. That setup is very similar to what we saw with uh, Haunting of Hill House. Yes. House on Haunt... No, Haunt... The Vincent Price one that we've covered. House on Haunted Hill. Yes. There was only one real problem with this, which was that Landis couldn't come up with what the endings should be. He was just kind of totally stumped on that part of it. So Hill and Landis uh, initially hired playwright Tom Stoppard, who's probably best known for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, to craft the screenplay. Uh, but after a year of work, Stoppard admitted that he couldn't crack it and like returned his advance and quit the project. Wow. And after some attempts to get Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins to write the movie, both of which never went anywhere, they ultimately hired writer Jonathan Lynn. Uh, Anthony Perkins of Psycho? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sweet. Uh, so Jonathan Lynn was born in England in 1943, and he studied law in college, but caught the acting bug. And so... Um, after making his West End debut in 1964, he was soon acting and writing for TV sitcoms. That was kind of his like genre of choice in Britain at the time. Uh, his biggest hit before Clue was a political satire series on BBC called Yes Minister, which he co-created and ran for 23 episodes over three series on the BBC. And after Clue, he would return for the sequel series, Yes, Prime Minister, which ran for two series of 16 episodes. So if you're British, you, you know Yes, Minister. Um, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, it's familiar. So Lynn wrote a screenplay that followed the details of the game closely. We have all the characters from the game, although this day I'm frustrated that they don't dress in their colors. It bothers me. Um, <laughs> but the mansion, uh, has the layout of the clue mansion. All of the secret passages in the movie are secret passages from the game that connect rooms in the same way that they do in the game. The murder weapons are all the murder weapons from the game. Um, which makes sense given that like, I feel like the pop culture thing of clue that is most recognizable is the way that you announce your deduction 
Which as is, you enter. Yeah, which is um, always like, it was this character in this room with this weapon, right? It was Colonel Mustard in the conservatory with the lead pipe kind of thing. Early editions of the game actually had a lead pipe, mm-hmm. like a small lead one, yeah. uh, which they replaced because of concerns about lead poisoning. Amazing. Amazing. But Lynn's biggest change to the like premise of the game was to set the story in 1954 and base it on the Red Scare, which is so interesting to me because Lynn was born in 1943 and grew up in the UK, but he chose to base it on this very like American thing. Uh, apparently because he had been hearing about the Red Scare from writer friends of his who had been on the blacklist. Oh. And that was kind of in his mind when creating the film. Landis made the decision to move on to different projects uh, after the movie had been in pre-production for a year and a bit. Um, So Hill promoted Jonathan Lynn to director and Clue became his first feature film. Nice. Lynn wanted English comedian Leonard Rossiter uh, for the role of Wadsworth the butler, who is an original character to the movie and kind of in some way the movie's lead character just because he gets the most dialogue out of anyone. However, Rossiter passed away before production started. And so Lynn moved to his second choice, Rowan Atkinson. Oh, interesting. But the producers vetoed that because at the time, um, Rowan Atkinson had only done like Blackadder. He hadn't done Mr. Bean yet. So U.S. audiences had no clue who Rowan Atkinson was. Um, So that was considered to be like, no, he's too obscure. We're doing this for American audiences. So Lynn turned to his high school friend, Tim Curry, who happily accepted. Yeah, they didn't want my first choice. Hey, Tim, you want to do it? Yeah. Yeah, I have nothing going on. (laughs) So Tim Curry was born in England in 1946 and graduated university with a degree in English and drama in 1968. He was soon cast in the musical Hair, uh, where he met Richard O'Brien, who would go on to write The Rocky Horror Show, casting Curry in the role of Dr. Frank Inferter. The play ran from 1973 to 1980 in London and from 1974 to 1975 in the U.S., where it was not nearly as big a hit as it was in the U.K. And Curry would move from the play to reprising his role for the 1975 film adaptation, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is probably the definitive cult movie. From there, Curry's stage and film career took off. Uh, In 1980, he played Mozart in the Broadway cast of Amadeus, Oh, interesting. I know Mark Hamill played Mozart on stage, and and that I can see. I don't know if I can see Tim Curry. Interesting. But Curry's role in Clue kind of changed the direction of his career. Um, He, you know, stayed like a weirdo character actor cast by people who like weirdo stuff in weirdo roles. (laughs) Um, but he also started appearing in more and more comedic roles in like mainstream family comedies like Home Alone 2 and Muppet Treasure Island. After having a stroke in 2012, he has focused mostly on voice acting. Moving on to the murder suspects 
in the cast. Uh, Christopher Lloyd was cast as Professor Plum. And at the time, he was best known for his breakout role on the sitcom Taxi. We've talked about Christopher Lloyd on another one of these Horror Jason episodes, but I don't remember which one. Adam's Family. Adam's Family. Fester. Yes. So Christopher Lloyd was born in 1938 in Connecticut to a wealthy Connecticut family. He studied acting in school. He made his Broadway debut in 1969. His first film role was in the critically acclaimed One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, but audiences got to know him best for his comedic role on Taxi, which ran from 1978 to 1983 and also introduced America to Danny DeVito and Andy Kaufman. After appearances in films like Star Trek III and Buckaroo Banzai, 1985 would be a big year for Lloyd, as after starring in Clue, he would appear in Back to the Future in what would be like an iconic role for him. He would reprise that role in Back to the Future Part 2, Part 3, and a bunch of other ancillary Back to the Future Yes entries in the years since Um, and other later well-known performances include the villain in who framed roger rabbit uncle fester in adam's family and adam's family values and a number of other family comedies of the 1990s comedian madeline khan was cast as mrs white who was the like least developed character in the original screenplay which led khan to improvise much of her dialogue Uh, including the famous flames on the side of my face speech that she gives. Khan was born in Boston in 1942 as Madeline Wolfson, uh, but became Madeline Khan when her mother remarried. And she began acting in high school, graduating from university as a speech therapist. To earn money as a college student, she worked as a singing waitress at a Bavarian restaurant, and there was a rich Italian customer who enjoyed opera, so Khan learned how to sing opera arias to please this customer, and then kind of like one thing led to another, and in 1968, she was playing the lead role in the operetta Candide. Um, at a concert to honor the 50th birthday of Leonard Bernstein or something along those lines. Wild. From there, she began appearing in popular Broadway musicals and then landed a role in the 1972 Barbara Streisand comedy What's Up, Doc? The director of that film, Peter Bogdanovich, then cast Khan in Paper Moon in 1973, for which she was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar. Her next film after that was the comedy Blazing Saddles for Mel Brooks, Mm. for which she would also be nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar. Through the next decade, she would appear in three more Brooks projects, Young Frankenstein, High Anxiety, and History of the World Part One. Her career kind of slowed after Clue in the 80s and 90s, and she passed away in 1998 of ovarian cancer. Mm. Carrie Fisher was cast in the role of Miss Scarlet, but that would have been amazing, but was checked into a drug rehab program days before shooting was to begin. Oh, yes. Oh, dear. She actually gained permission from the rehab program to work while she was in rehab, like she could have come to set and done the movie. But the film's insurance company refused to cover her. Uh, And so she was recast with Leslie Ann Warren. 
Born in 1946 in New York, Warren had trained in acting, ballet, and singing from a young age. She made her Broadway debut in 1963 and appeared in the 1965 television musical Cinderella, based on the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, which brought her praise and led to a steady television career through the 60s and 70s. She played Lois Lane in the 1975 TV musical It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, but lost the 1978 film role to Margot Kidder. In 1982, she appeared in Blake Edwards' film Victor Victoria and was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her performance. Eileen Brennan, who plays Mrs. Peacock, was born in L.A. in 1932 and began her acting career while attending the American Academy of the Dramatic Arts in New York. Her theater work in the early 1960s led to a steady career on TV and in film as a character actress through the 1970s. She received a Best Supporting Actress nomination in 1980 for her role in Private Benjamin, a role which she reprised in the TV show version from 1981 to 1983. In 1982, she was hit by a car and suffered severe injuries, and it took uh, her three years to recover before she could return to work, um, during which time she became addicted to painkillers. She had just gotten out of rehab before shooting started on Clue. Michael McKean, who plays Mr. Green, was born in 1947 in New York, son of one of the founders of Decca Records. His early comic career was in partnership with David Lander. Uh, Together, they played the characters Lenny and Squiggy on the sitcom Laverne and Shirley starting in 1976. That pair of characters kind of like took off, uh, leading to the two recording a comedy music album called Lenny and the Squigtones in 1979. Honestly, it's not surprising because Laverne and Shirley itself which is a spinoff, yes. also had its own fair share of spinoffs. Yes. That album then became really popular on the Dr. Demento show. <laughs> and so that led to this like comedy music career for Michael McKean. And so after leaving Laverne and Shirley in 1982, the lead guitarist on Lenny and the Squig Tones, Christopher Guest, cast McKean as the lead singer of the fictional band Spinal Tap in Guest's 1984 mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap. But under a different name, so there is no actual in-universe connection between Spinal Tap and Laverne and Shirley. Right. Correct. Yes, he's a different character. Unlike that Martian TV show. Right. Um, However, Spinal Tap are characters who exist in the world of of The Simpsons. Correct. After Clue, Michael McKean appeared in popular comedies like Planes, Trains, and Automobiles and Earth Girls Are Easy. And in the 1990s, he appeared on television shows like SNL, Star Trek Voyager, and The X-Files. He continued to appear in the films of Spinal Tap director Christopher Guest, uh, movies such as Best in Show and A Mighty Wind. He played Perry White on the TV show Smallville, where his wife, Annette O'Toole, played Martha Kent. And in the 2010s, he found a new audience playing the character Chuck McGill on Better Call Saul. Martin Mull, who played Colonel Mustard, was born in Chicago in 1943 and earned a Master of Fine Arts in painting before breaking into show business as the writer of satirical songs. 
1976, he began appearing on television in the absurdist cult show Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and he appeared in a variety of television roles through the 80s and 90s. Uh, He was the principal on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yes. This is the guy I was telling you about, Ben. I only know him as the principal of Sabrina. He's the voice of the main villain on Danny Phantom. Yes. uh, And he's also a private eye on Arrested Development. Lee Ving, frontman of the punk band Fear, plays Mr. Body. Uh, He was born Lee Capillero in Philadelphia in 1950, and he came to prominence when Fear was featured in the 1981 documentary The Decline of Western Civilization. Fear also appeared on the controversial 1981 Halloween episode of Saturday Night Live at the request of John Belushi, resulting in a crowd of moshing punk fans yelling, Fuck New York! on live TV. Classic. (laughs) He was cast in Clue almost entirely due to the pun of his name, because Mr. Body dies first, and so he would be leaving. Yeah. Also from the L.A. punk scene is Jane Widlin, who plays the singing telegram girl. Yes. Uh, she is a member of the punk band The Go-Go's. She also appeared as Joan of Arc in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And she also portrays Dusk, one of the hex girls in the Scooby-Doo franchise. Yes. Colleen Camp, who plays Yvette the Maid, won the part over actresses like Demi Moore and Madonna. She auditioned for the part in a French maid costume and got the role thanks to her physical attributes. (laughs) It's the 80s. Yeah. Yay. Mm -hmm. Kelly Nakahara, who plays the cook, would be most recognizable to audiences as Nurse Kelly, a sort of background character she played on 167 episodes of MASH. Uh, She passed away from cancer in 2020. The evangelist character is played by Howard Hessman, best known as Johnny Fever on WKRP in Cincinnati. Hessman passed away in 2022 at age 81. Before filming began, Lynn assembled the cast uh, for a screening of His Girl Friday uh, to... Oh, fun. Yeah, to get across the kind of like quick bantery dialogue style that he wanted for the movie. The film was shot on sets that were decorated with antiques from the estate of Teddy Roosevelt. The cast is almost all in every scene together, so they spent plenty of time between takes uh, just kind of cracking each other up. Miss Scarlet's dress was so tight that Leslie and Warren couldn't sit down, so they had a reclining board that she could (laughs) lean against between takes. And after shooting, Tim Curry's blood pressure was so high from running around the set giving lengthy shouted speeches that he had to see a doctor to get it under control. Wow. Ultimately, while four endings were shot, only three were used. Uh, Each theater the movie went to would receive one of the three endings, which were labeled A, B, or C. 
Upon release on December 13th, 1985, the film was not received well by critics, uh, who panned it for poor pacing, a weak screenplay, thin characters, and the consensus was generally that after a strong start, the movie runs out of steam and becomes very repetitive, with the three endings hurting the movie rather than helping it, because all of the clues in the first part of the movie have to work for all three endings so it's not like a really satisfying yeah mystery audiences stayed away and clue only made 14.6 million dollars on a 15 million dollar budget so almost all of its money back yeah but, but uh didn't even break even no however the film's lack of explicit violence nudity or foul language despite constant innuendos uh made it popular to show on television in the tv version each ending is shown one after another with ending c presented as the true ending this version is also how the film was released on vhs and it was on vhs and on tv that the movie became a cult hit with fans who like grew up with the movie, people of our generation, essentially. Yeah. Modern DVD and Blu-ray releases have the ability to randomize the ending. Uh, so you can kind of have that original experience of not knowing what ending you were going to get, or you can watch the three endings one right after another, like it was on VHS. Um, that version with the three endings is also what you get on streaming services. The, Cult hit status of Clue has led to many popular culture tributes in the last 10 years, um, as well as like a stage play adaptation and remake rumors. And basically you can tie that to kids who grew up on the film being old enough to have jobs in the film industry now. Yeah. Like I said, it's all an Ouroboros. Right. Clue is widely available on DVD and Blu-ray and can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Microsoft Video, YouTube, Amazon Prime, Cineplex, etc. You, if you want to watch Clue, it's it's out there. Um, we'll probably be watching it off of our DVD. Yeah. Um, how? <laughs> what What are we doing for the endings? I usually like to watch the movie with a randomized ending, uh, particularly because I find watching the three versions of the endings one right after another to be an exceptionally exhausting experience. But for the fairness of reviewing the movie for this podcast, we might as well do the three ending version so we can talk about all the endings. Okay. Well, folks, uh, find a copy, watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Clue from 1985, directed by Jonathan Lynn. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. We just finished watching Clue from 1985, directed by Jonathan Lynn. Ben, uh, how many times have you seen this movie now? Four or five. Okay. I would say maybe like three for me. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. What are your first thoughts? Um, I have the same problems with this movie that I traditionally have had. Uh, I didn't really pick up anything like new on this time around that i was like 
critical of. Um, you know, like, wait a minute. Yeah. This movie foretells the the prophecy of Joe Biden. I don't know. No, uh, nothing <laughs> new. No revelations. So basically, my opinion is unchanged uh, on this movie, which is it's it's fun and it's fine, but um, it could be much, much better than it is. Yeah, uh, I would agree. Um, it's not a bad time could certainly be better Mm -hmm. uh and i think a lot of people's nostalgia for it really colors their memories of it yes but of course we'll get into more of that in the discussion i've tried to simplify this plot synopsis as much as possible i mean you could just like put in the audio of the entire third act which is just tim curry running around the set synopsizing the movie you just saw that would be copyright infringement, then. <laughs> That's fair. So instead, I shall regale the listeners with my own voice. Okay. In 1954, six strangers arrive for a dinner party under different pseudonyms. Each person is being blackmailed and has been invited by their blackmailer, known to them as Mr. Body. We meet in this order Colonel Mustard, Mrs. White, Mrs. Peacock, Mr. Green, Professor Plum, and Miss Scarlet. Now, the movie doesn't give us these details right now, but for this plot synopsis, I will. Each of them are being blackmailed for different reasons. For Mrs. White, she is the suspect in the death of her husband, who was a nuclear scientist. Mrs. Peacock uh, is being blackmailed for taking bribes for her husband, who is a U.S. senator. Mr. Green works at the State Department and is gay. Dun, dun, dun. Um, Professor Plum lost his medical license because he had an affair with one of his patients. Miss Scarlet runs a brothel and is bribing a cop. And Colonel Mustard is one of Scarlet's customers, but also reveals later that he was a war profiteer during World War II. Other folks we meet include the butler, uh, Wadsworth, um, and Yvette, who is the maid, um, who turns out Yvette has also previously worked with Scarlet as one of her ladies in the night now it turns out that wadsworth is the person who orchestrated everyone coming to dinner tonight to try to trap mr body and take him to the police because um wadsworth's wife was blackmailed and committed suicide about it but body is like aha but if i give everyone a weapon we can all kill wadsworth and no one will be the wiser we'll just take this to our grave Uh, The lights go out, and when they come back out, Body is on the floor, seemingly dead. And so now we must start to solve the murder. They hear Yvette, the maid, screaming from the other room. She had been recording the conversation to get, you know, further evidence of, like, everyone's crimes and blackmailing. And then they also discover that the cook is dead. Then they find Mr. Body really actually dead this time in the bathroom. Throughout the movie, a motorist arrives and he is killed. We learned that he recognized someone in the party as uh, one of his old bosses. Um, a cop arrives and uh, ends up accidentally taking a call from who he says is J. Edgar Hoover on the phone. Um, and he gets killed. And a singing telegram girl is shot and killed when she rings the doorbell. Uh, Yvette is also strangled. More secrets come out throughout the movie, including, um, like I said, Yvette having worked for Scarlet, 
and also having been the person who had relations with Mustard uh, and had an affair with White's husband. The cook used to work for Peacock. The cop is uh, a cop that Scarlet had been bribing to kind of keep her brothel going. And the telegram girl was actually one of Plum's patients who he had had the affair with. Now, once um, Yvette is found dead, plus the cop and the telegram girl, um, Wadsworth goes like, aha, I think I know who did it. At this point, I'll say that we do get a brief interruption by an evangelist at the door, but then he gets a door slammed in his face. So now I will go into the three endings presented in the order that they are given. And as a reminder, like when this movie came out in theaters, you only got one of these endings. Yeah. Getting all three was just what you got on the home video release. And they have little title cards, which is a bit of a cute novelty of like, it could have ended like this or like this, but here's the real story. Yeah. Um, so option A, behind door number A, it turns out Yvette is uh, who killed the cook and Mr. Body because she was working with Scarlet. And then she was murdered by Scarlet who in turn killed the others, um, the cop, the uh, motorist, uh, because she recognized them from looking at Wadsworth's evidence. She plans to continue blackmailing everyone because in addition to running the brothel, her real work is having those people provide her with state secrets. So now these people will continue to provide state secrets for her. That's her plan, and then she is disarmed by Wadsworth and the FBI shows up because Wadsworth was actually working for the FBI and the evangelist was his chief. Ending B, option B, behind door B, mm-hmm. turns out Peacock killed everyone because she uh, was trying to hide that uh, she was taking bribes from foreign powers. Um, so she's like, okay, I'll kill body to hide that. And now I need to kill this cop. I need to kill that person, blah, blah, blah. Everyone kind of plays it cool when it turns out Peacock did it. They're like, yeah, no, you saved us too because now no one's blackmailing us. Thanks. You can go now. And she goes and she goes to her car. And that's when the FBI catch her outside, including the evangelist who is the FBI chief. And in this version, um, Wadsworth is also an FBI agent. And then final option, option C uh, turns out everyone kind of killed someone for one reason or another, except for Mr. Green. Um, and Wadsworth thanks them because it turns out he was actually Mr. Body and got everyone to kind of kill his network of spies and workers uh, so he can continue kind of keeping the secrets for himself and he will continue blackmailing everyone. He tries to go make it out alive, but then Green shoots him with his own gun. In this version, Mr. Green is the secret FBI agent, and he lets in the FBI, who the evangelist is the uh, chief, and then he pronounces, and now to go home and sleep with my wife, to make sure everyone knows that no, he is not a homosexual. So I gotta admit, and I'm going home to sleep with my wife, is like one of the lines that I remember the best from this movie. Well, cause it's so out there. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's just such a, like, cause I'm, it, it's cause I'm it, not gay. It reminds me of like, you know how Christmas Carol ends with like, and tiny Tim who was not dead. <laughs> I always think of like, and Mr. Green who, who was not, not gay. gay. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So that's the movie. Uh, Ben, is there anything that you'd like to mention that I skipped over? Um, 
you did a really good job uh, of covering what was important. Um, I'd like to outline ending D, which was filmed but not used. Oh, sweet, yeah. So in ending D, Wadsworth committed all the murders. Uh, He was motivated by his desire for perfection. Having failed to be either the perfect husband or the perfect butler, he decides to be the perfect murderer instead. He tells all the guests that he poisoned the champagne that the guests drank, so they will all soon die, leaving no witnesses. The police and the FBI arrive, and Wadsworth is um, arrested and confesses. His method of confessing is to run around the house synopsizing the movie again which he just did and he does in all of like the endings but this time when he gets to answering the door for colonel mustard he just opens the door and runs out he runs into a police car and steals it but is killed when three police dogs lunge from the back seat and maul him to death um okay so that's amazing i much prefer okay the endings a b c and d yes B, where it's Peacock, the weakest. Absolute weakest. Yeah. A, I think, is pretty strong. Um, and C, I like because it subverts a bit of the like the butler did it kind of trope, as well as having some fun with the line that Green says of like, and it was I who killed Mr. Body with my pistol in the entryway or whatever. So I like C. But D sounds fucking dope. They should have had that instead of B. So the reason they ended up not using D was that D ended up feeling really grim because everyone dies. Yeah, that would have been great um, because no one is a likable character. <laughs> very true. They, they wanted to like go off on a laugh. Like all the other endings kind of have like a little freeze frame gag moment, basically. Sure. But I mean, it gets set up with like him not enjoying the dogs in the beginning. Yes. Like it would have been a perfect bookend. Um, and you could have easily had the evangelist be like, I don't know, call back to something that is said to him of like, we don't care about our, our souls. We care for our lives. And him going like, guess he doesn't care about either or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. They could have had something really good there. I really like ending D it's my favorite. Um, of the three that got used, I liked ending C the best because making everyone a murderer except Mr. Green enables all of the various clues and red herrings to work. Yes. Um, not that like every clue in a murder mystery has to turn out to be relevant, right? Sometimes things are red herrings, but I like that this means that like all the clues kind of make sense throughout the movie. And I like that Mr. Green, who keeps insisting throughout the movie that he didn't do it, definitely didn't do it. I like the gag where it turns out that he's not gay. It's like a fun payoff to like the setup of him being gay. So I I like ending C, but I do find ending A to be a lot of fun, too, just because Leslie Ann Warren really works it. it. Yeah, she has a lot of fun turning out to be the villain. I really like A. I do like C. The problem for me with C Mm. is the idea of, like, everyone did it. Mm -hmm. I have such... It's better done than Murder on the Orient Express, which yeah, I know you you hate oh, that ending. Exactly. That 
movie. Cause, cause least... Which one is that? Like that, that's from the seventies or whatever, yes. right? Yeah. Um, so that adaptation, everyone stabbed the dude. So like everyone's guilty. I find that such a cheap way to be like, well, who cares about the clues? Like everyone did whatever. Sure. Like the writer didn't have to worry about like, well, person A couldn't be in um, this room at that time because they were murdering. It's like, well, it was everyone else. Like yeah. option A where it's Yvette working with Scarlet because they have a relationship uh-huh. that doesn't feel the same way as like, well, everyone just killed everyone. Who cares? For sure. The other reason why C bothers me. I see what you're saying about like, oh, it pays off that the setup of him being gay, but mm. it's like, why was that something that needed to be set up? Like, I don't know. It, it bothers me that it's like, and now to make sure that everyone feels okay about this movie, he's a heterosexual. The way I headcanon it to make me feel a little like less like the fuck, what was that about? Is Mr. Green was being blackmailed for being gay. He was invited and he's like, oh, well, now I can get the guy who's been blackmailing me by setting up a sting operation or whatever. And then his announcement at the end is to be like, just kidding, I'm not actually gay, but I actually am. So I get what you're saying, and I understand why from like a 2023 like diversity and inclusion representation perspective, him being like, JK, I'm not gay, like doesn't ring well. But in the context of the movie itself, I think it's a it makes for a good ending because it's playing on the fact that like a you couldn't work for the state department and be gay in the 1950s it's a legitimate thing to like be blackmailing him over it, you really would lose your job and then b that kind of like establishes this stereotype of him that plays into the rest of the movie where he's kind of like kind of klutzy he's kind of easily frightened um he's effeminate he's, he's effeminate he's not like super effeminate um he's not like limp wrist gay but like it means that like you don't pay a lot of attention to him you never really consider him like a legitimate suspect in the murders or like a source of danger which makes him turning out to be the fbi agent like a good surprise it also makes a lot of sense as a cover because having that as your blackmail thing would mean that you would know that the people at the house like wouldn't really be paying attention to you or would even potentially be um, so turned off by you that they'd be trying to like avoid you and look away from you, which we see a lot of people doing in the movie. And then, of course, the announcement that like I'm not really gay is both like a kind of jokey thing to end the movie on and also like, you know, he couldn't be an FBI agent and be gay in the 1950s, at least not openly. So to me, it all makes like sense contextually within the movie. Um, and I don't necessarily read it as being like homophobic. Like I don't read it as the studio telling the audience like, oh, don't worry. He's not actually gay so much as just like basically confirming like, hey, everything that you thought about me was part of my cover. Sure. Uh, I think both of those things can be true and we can agree to disagree. (laughs) For sure. I will say like, this is how I felt the first time I saw the movie. It's Mm. not a 2023 perspective. Like, yes, we're in 2023, but I didn't like, yeah, whatever. Um, Yeah, no, no, no. I get what you're saying. Now, I know that you find this movie repetitive. Mm. And one thing you called out from the reviews is pacing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's 97 minutes long. It's 30 minutes in that they start trying to solve the bodies 
murder. Yeah, the first murder. And then it's about 60 minutes in after the cop gets murdered, mm-hmm. just to kind of give everyone a feel for like in, in thirds, like <laughs> where yeah. everything is at. Yes, it's only 97 minutes, but yes, it does drag on. So I feel like there's kind of two related issues here. The first is that the movie never quite takes off the way it wants to. Mm -hmm. It has a pretty strong opening. And then I think it has like, you know, the very famous manic finale of Wadsworth running around the house yelling the plot to everyone. But the middle where they split up to search the house really drags. Um, Nothing really gets learned except by Scarlet and Mustard who find both secret passages. So all the other teams are entirely redundant and don't really further the story. And in terms of what jokes could be happening during that section, there's only one and they do it with every single group, which is that neither person trusts the other to enter ahead of the person. So they end up like awkwardly squeezing through the door together. Like they all do a variant on that joke. Um, So it ends up being this really slow sluggish middle. And for me, that makes the mania at the end feel a bit unearned, Um, especially because like when they discover that the cop Yvette and the singing telegram girl are dead. The movie does do a funny gag, which is that after like reacting with great shock and alarm to the first couple of murders, these three just get like a shrug and a, yeah, all right, moving on because they're so inured to it at this point. The problem with that is then Wadsworth announces like, I know who did it and just like launches into this like manic rant that feels like it would have been more earned if the film's energy level had kept steadily building and building and building to that breaking point from the start, rather than kind of like going up and then going down in the middle and then suddenly shooting back up again. Yeah, I agree. I think at the end, it's a valiant attempt with like that manic physical energy with the recap mm-hmm. uh, from Wadsworth, but it it also feels like it goes on too long. Yeah. So you're just tired by the end. I don't know if that's because it doesn't feel earned, um, but I feel like it's almost like the writers were handcuffed to both the trope of like, and now I shall explain how it was done. Yeah. But also that's kind of the gameplay as Mm -hmm. well is saying like, ah, I think it was this person in that room with this weapon. I understand why it's here. And so I respect that it's in here, but it should have not been the entire evening. I know that that's also part of the joke because I keep saying like, he's like, to make a long story short, too late. Yeah. So I know that that's part of the gag, but it's also like, don't have a gag at the expense of your pacing. We also like just saw this movie. Like the audience doesn't need Wadsworth to explain everything to us in as much detail as he does. The thing about the search the house section too is like, it really feels like padding for time. Yes. Again, because Scarlet and Mustard discover both secret passages, they could have split that up. Like one group discovers one, one group discovers another. Maybe a third group discovers like that the key from the cabinet was the other key and not the key they thought it was. Like give everyone something to discover so we feel like we're furthering the plot with all those groups rather than just knowing that every other scene that isn't Scarlet and Mustard is padding for time. Yeah, follow Scooby-Doo rules. 
The other thing with like the gameplay of Clue, like one of the reasons why the structure of the ending is you say it was this person in this room with this weapon is because like, you know, Mr. Body's dead. You don't know with what weapon or who did it or where, which is like represented by them finding the body dead in the toilet. But then the deduction part of the game comes from the fact that everyone was split up and everyone's in a different room and you're trying to track their movements during the night and trying to track like the movements of the weapons and who had what when. Um, And the fact is that other than the splitting up sequence, the whole cast is all together in every scene, kind of just moving around as like a gestalt entity. And the whole cast is trying to solve the murder not just Wadsworth, which is unlike the structure of the game where each player is playing for themselves. And so they're working for themselves, not with others. Exactly. And trying to solve the murder slash pin it on someone else in the group. Right. So because they kind of drop that structure so that the comedy, I think, can be easier. So you're not getting like caught up in the machinations. It means that there's not enough actual events occurring in the story which is why we get that mushy middle it was a good idea to have the cast watch his girl friday Mm -hmm. to get that feeling of that banter i don't think they achieve it though so i feel like the problem with that isn't quite the cast and it's not quite the screenplay i think the script is fairly witty in a lot of places there's some good back and forths the editing feels wrong they didn't edit this right um and i don't know if it's just because by the 1980s like the art of that kind of editing was lost or what but it's like the editors didn't know how to pace it um sometimes there are these lulls between lines as if like almost expecting like oh we'll wait for laughter yeah, here. like a laugh track is supposed to go in. Whereas His Girl Friday and the movies of that time, there's no wait. Yeah. They just go. They just go. And that's almost what you need. Like in Clue, it feels like they're either pausing for laughter or waiting to give the audience a chance to get the joke. Like, Which is go- fair because some of them are like, I wouldn't have gotten that as a kid. Like- yeah. But the thing is that kills the momentum of that snappy banter. And you're totally right in those old movies. They just went, 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 went. And the whole reason for that is that like, they want you to see it multiple times. Well, <laughs> um, not every joke is going to land with every person in the audience. Not everyone finds the same thing funny. So when you're just doing joke after joke, after joke, after joke, They don't all need to land. Some people are going to be laughing at some points. You might miss a joke because someone was laughing or it went too far, but it doesn't matter because here's another joke right around the corner. When you kind of try to pause for laughs on every line, it means every joke has to land. And if they don't, you just get this awkward pause in the theater. If everyone does laugh, you don't notice those gaps as much. But if there's no laughter, then you're like, what's going on? And it feels slower. This also means that like, so this movie's really fond of running jokes. Yeah. Uh, repeated punchlines, repeated references. Well, there's a lot of running at the end, Ben. Yes, that's right. <laughs> a lot of run. Yes, very good. Um, there's 
like physical gags that repeat over and over. Uh, like when everyone arrives, people keep sniffing around because they think they might have sh- uh, stepped in dog shit, mm-hmm. which happens like over and over and over again. There's a running gag where just in any scene with Scarlet or Yvette, a character in that scene with them is just looking at those characters' boobs. But like, again, if you're holding to pause on each of those, if that that danger of the audience not liking that joke is even worse with a running joke because if you've got a running joke the audience doesn't like then it becomes tired yeah exactly so you want that to be faster so that if a joke doesn't land you're on to the next one Mm -hmm. but then weirdly enough there are moments where i felt like they should have paused longer and they don't they just like glide past stuff so it's not like a consistent mistake where it's like, oh, you didn't realize that you shouldn't be pausing for laughter. Maybe those jokes didn't land with the editor and they were like, <laughs> I'm just cutting. I'm just cutting. Maybe. But like, yeah, because there's other jokes where it's like you should have paused for effect and didn't. To me, it just suggests that ultimately the editing process didn't know what the pacing should be like. And for that... I blame the fact that Lynn is a first time director. Like Mm. he wrote the screenplay, but it's his first time directing a feature film. And I think that shows in the way that like, he doesn't quite know how to make this work um, as a movie. I'm actually not surprised that the stage adaptation, which just uses the same script as the movie works really well Mm -hmm. um, because editing doesn't become a factor and you can have a more natural pace and rhythm which is what the movie never really establishes, right? That rhythm. Like there are times where they get like close, like there's little moments where the movie takes off and then it kind of falls back to earth again. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to say that the atmosphere, you know, kind of harking back to its origins of like spooky, moody mystery. uh, The atmosphere outside is fantastic no atmosphere inside yeah yeah they do a lot of good like it's the rain it's the old dark house it's the moon it's dogs barking etc and inside it's like everything is fully lit so you can see everything right uh we'll get dark when like the lights go out but it's not a consistent thing mm-hmm. and it's like <laughs> the electricity bill of this house must be through the roof because every light in this house is on. And I think that's an issue with the fact that this is a 1980s comedy and that kind of bright flat lighting was just the standard in 1980s comedies. And it's why movies like Young Frankenstein are kind of a cut above this because what you needed to do, like you didn't just need to screen his girl Friday for the cast. So they understood the pace of the banter. You also should have been screening like the old dark house for the cinematographers and set designers and such. So that like you were, you should be aping the cinematographic style of the genre you're parodying. Right? Yes, exactly. Um, maybe the, another case of, you know, first time director. Um, but I think that could have really made the, this movie a, a cut above. Yeah. You can also just see like a direct through line from Cat in the Canary to the to Clue, mm. which I think is really neat. I think they do capture that element that um, the board game even is kind of calling back on. So I do think they they succeed in what they were trying to do, mm. but it's not like a an A. It's you not know, a it's slam like a, dunk. it's like a C plus B minus feeling. Yeah. You know, speaking about that era, they're harking back to. I mentioned this a little bit in the intro, but. 
I have never liked the 1950s American setting for this. Um, it lets them do all these, like, it lets them make the joke, communism was always a red herring, which is clearly a joke that they were proud of because it makes it into all three endings said by different people. Yes, but I also love Tim Curry going like, my wife was a socialist. Yeah, and everyone's like, oh my God. But like... Like, my God, the worst thing you could possibly be. But I think it's a mistake, again, because of the issue of genre emulation. Sure. Like, ultimately, it kind of throws off some of the characters because these characters, in their original conceptions, are stock characters from... British country manor murder mysteries. And while I think you don't need to be in Britain per se, like Knives Out shows that you can do the country manor thing perfectly well in the US, those stock characters I think work best if you keep the 1920s or 1930s era intact, which was the heyday of this genre. Colonel Mustard is better if he's kind of like a pompous what now what what kind of british general character you know and and all these characters like mrs peacock as like the old unassuming you know woman mrs white as the the black widow kind of character these things work a lot better in that 20s 30s setting than in a 1950s setting i feel like it's just the wrong decade to pick for your genre emulation nostalgia and i personally would have also set this in the uk if i was making it but the american setting doesn't necessarily make it not work well it's new england right right which is you know they're kind of hitting that like we're sort of like a it's it's the spooky part of america right? yeah 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 you get the vibe i uh, don't feel strongly like you do about the time period i think the 50s is fine I think it also kind of works for like the nostalgia harking back thing that they're doing because mm -hmm. that's 30 years ago uh, when Clue came out. That was like 30 years after people would have been playing these games. Like sure. in that Ouroboros 30 year frequency thing. And yeah. now like we're 30 years from there. And so people love the movie. Yeah. So I, I think it it's fine. Um, I don't have a strong feeling like you do, but you know, yours, yours is respected. My, one other nitpick with this movie is I fucking hate the costumes. They aren't bad in and of themselves. I hate the costumes so much. They are bad in and of themselves. <laughs> so there are two things I hate about the costumes. Okay. So the first is that people aren't wearing their colors, which the movie's conceit is that these are all pseudonyms that these people, you know, didn't know they would have. They were assigned to them by Mr. Body. And so like, I get that it wouldn't make sense for them to dress in their colors. Also in a very subtle detail, their cars are actually their right colors. The thing that annoys me is I would be perfectly fine with them not, you know, dressing in their correct colors. If it wasn't for the fact that like Mr. Green is wearing a blue suit and Miss Scarlet is wearing a green dress and Mrs. White is wearing a black dress. Like if they're not going to wear their colors, they shouldn't be wearing other people's colors that's where i get really annoyed <laughs> and colonel mustard is wearing a brown suit with a gold tie which is a really like subtle way to hearken to his color palette and they could have done that with 
some of the other characters. In terms of like what kinds of dresses and outfits and suits everyone's wearing, I think they all are well done in that sense. Like they're all wearing what you kind of think they should be. The reason why the costumes are also bad in and of themselves, not in relation to the adaptation, is um, all of the women's costumes, with the exception of Mrs. Peacock, are terrible. And they Mrs. Are... Peacock's works because she has like the feathery hat <laughs> thingy. And and uh, sorry, the Mrs. Peacock, the singing telegram girl, and the cook all have fine costumes. It's really Miss Scarlet, <laughs> Yvette, and Mrs. White because of a very typical problem with Hollywood movies uh, that are set in period. They aren't of the time. They are not of the time. And honestly, the jokes would land better if they were. So none of these women are wearing period-appropriate shapewear uh, in terms of like bras or corsets or foundational garments or whatever, which makes sense because none of those styles were in style anymore by the 80s. But it means that their outfits, which are designed under like 50s fashion patterns, don't fit them right. So everyone spends like the whole movie looking at Scarlet or Yvette's tits, which is this running gag. And unfortunately, it means that your attention is constantly drawn to them, which means that I notice that they aren't wearing the right foundation garments. And I might not have if the movie didn't stop to stare at their tits every 30 seconds but like Yvette's tits are just kind of sitting there yeah well the movie wants them to just be sitting there like when we are introduced to her she's dancing or bouncing around or whatever in like a way that is drawing your attention but if she was wearing proper shapewear they would be a little bit better pronounced right exactly like they would be actually like have some better oomph to them that va va voom yeah. that they would have garments, more joan right give them instead they're just kind of like sitting there kind of flopping about and the same <laughs> thing with like miss scarlet's uh breasts which would have been like much more like pronounced and with better cleavage and you know fitting that dress a lot better if she had the proper Garments, because of the way that they're just kind of loosey-goosey in the dress, they aren't actually, like, as prominent or, um, you know, her cleavage isn't really as good as the movie is making all the characters out to be reacting to. Yeah, the dress doesn't look like it fits her body type in the way that Scarlet and her background would suggest she knows how to dress herself, right? Right. It's not that, like, it's wrong. It just doesn't look right. Yeah. These costumes don't fit these women right. And I wouldn't maybe have noticed it as much if you didn't have all the male characters constantly ogling them in every scene. And, like, we could go into a debate on, you know, the pros and cons of the male gaze and should ogling the women's bodies be a running joke in the movie and we could talk about whether that's problematic or not. But even if we take that discussion and put it on a shelf, the jokes about ogling the women would land better if they looked better in their clothes, mm-hmm. if the costume designer had done a better job. So it's not just that like this is an ill-conceived joke that maybe shouldn't be in the movie. It's also an ill-conceived joke that doesn't land well. So it's like double bad. And I'll just say that that conversation that you've shelved about yeah. the male gaze, etc., people can listen to in our Peeping Tom episode. That's very fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we go into that in much detail. I do feel like an ill-conceived joke that doesn't land well also kind of sums up a lot of stuff in this movie. 
Yes, I would agree. Uh, that's how I feel about how they treat the cook and her size. Right. It bothers me. Yeah. But it's also like, I understand this movie is of its time, but also it would be nice if people weren't dicks. Yeah, it could have been done better. better. And the fact of the matter is, is, you know, I blamed a little bit the editing on like, it's the 80s and we don't know how to do that 40s snappy thing anymore. But the fact of the matter is, is that the airplane guys were putting out movies around this same time that have that pace that you want. So it could be done, you know? And with that, we'll wrap this episode. I'm sorry if you love Clue and I just kind of tore it a new asshole. Uh, I don't think you you ripped into it in like that manner. I think we had a good discussion that was like respectful of people who really like this movie. Like it's, it's a it's fun movie. Fun. It's fine. It's a B minus. Like right. that's a pass. Yeah. It's just, it's not immune to criticism. Yeah. Nothing is. Except for Citizen Kane. <laughs> and thank you so much. For- <laughs> thank you everyone for tuning in this week for our last horror adjacent episode that will be coming out monthly. Um, from now on, we will be doing them uh, when it is relevant to the show. We thank everyone for your understanding with that change and for uh, your understanding about the delay in this episode coming up. Yeah. Life gets bonkers. Mm-hmm. And thank you as well to all of our patrons who have participated in the polls and the voting for these horror adjacent movies over the last two years. Yeah. Clue actually tied with Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll be doing a gothic retrospective on Rebecca to appease our patron overlords. (laughs) And I I think I really look forward to that. I think Rebecca fits the Gothic retrospective series very well. Yes, absolutely. So Ben, what are we watching next week on our regular program? Next week, Sarah, we are back in Britain with another film from Anglo Amalgamated, the third entry in their sadist trilogy, following up on Peeping Tom. It is Circus of Horrors. Fantastic. I don't think it'll be as uh, extreme as Peeping Tom. No. Because I don't believe it ruined anyone's careers. Correct. Uh, Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.